something has gone badly wrong. That's the conclusion that you would come to if you were to compare how the book of Genesis ends to how it begins. The book starts with God making everything very good. No sin, no suffering, no death. It's wonderful. But it ends with Joseph, a man who loved God, a man who served God, being put in a coffin in Egypt. Being put in something he should never have had to be put in, in a land that that God's people should never have been in. Something has gone badly wrong. The book starts in Egypt and ends in Eden. It starts with life and it ends in death. There were no coffins in God's original creation. There were no graveyards. Uh, There was none of the mourning that we see in this chapter. Something has gone badly wrong. At least from our perspective. God is still in control as we'll see. But we look at the end of Genesis and we think surely this wasn't how it was meant to be. And yet praise God that although this is how the book of Genesis ends, it's not how the whole story ends. And in that this book points us forward to Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, who would one day come to undo all the effects of the fall. But until he would come, God's people would have to live by faith. And we're actually in the same position. Even though we live on on the other side of the cross from them, we're still waiting for the day when Jesus will come back. And until that day, we are called to live by faith. And that means living by faith in God's promise that he's in control. It means living by faith in God's promise of present forgiveness. And it means living by faith in God's promises of a future homecoming and so we're going to look at each of these three things in turn tonight so firstly tonight we're called to live by faith in God's promise that he's in control there are a few things guaranteed to make us more fearful than the thought that the world is just spinning out of control or the thought that, well, God might be sovereign in, in the lives of other people, but, but not ours. Uh, and that we have perhaps somehow managed to mess up our lives to an extent that, that we're now outside of God's control. And those are conclusions that we could easily come to if we just looked at the world around us. Or, or if we just looked at our own lives at times and some of the circumstances that God brings into them. But what a reminder we have here in verse 20 that God is in control of all things. And that even the bad things that happen don't happen out with his control. Nor is it even simply that God manages somehow to bring good out of bad situations. But he's actually working through the very events that evil people think they are in control of. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it, the same thing, for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
I'm sure that's not not a verse you haven't heard before. It's easily the most well-known verse in the chapter. But just let the truth and goodness of it flow into your heart this evening. Those events that come into our lives where we think, I could do without this. Or we think or we even say, well this is just the last thing I need. God brings them into our lives for our good. Because he knows that we do need them. And amazingly, God in his sovereignty was using even the evil actions of Joseph's brothers. Not just for for Joseph's good, but even for their good. Because they're selling Joseph as a slave. Was the very way in which Joseph would come into Egypt. So that decades later, he could save them from the famine. And Joseph can see now why God has allowed all this to happen. Though actually the word allowed is probably too weak because the Bible talks about Joseph being sent ahead of them. It all makes sense to Joseph now, but it didn't at the time. As he's sold as a slave at the age of 17, as he's thrown into prison, even when he's tried to honour God at great cost to himself, he wouldn't have understood then. It was like he was looking at the back of the tapestry and it just looked like a a mess of jumbled threads. But now he gets to see it from the front, which is something that we we don't often get to do. But but Joseph does here. He, He sees the tapestry from the front and he sees a glorious picture of what God has been doing, of what God has been weaving together throughout those many years. And faith for us is believing that the same thing is true of our lives. That even if we can only see the tumbled mess of threads, we believe that God is at work, that he doesn't make mistakes, and that he is making something beautiful. Notice as well, by the way, that God meant it not just for Joseph's good, not even just for the good of Joseph's brothers, but for the good of of many people. God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. Is God working everything together in our lives for our own personal goods? Well, yes, I think we can say he is. He's working everything together in our lives for our own personal good. He's not doing less than that, but he is doing more than that. And what a thought that is, that the sufferings we are going through may be for the good of God's people. Now obviously none of us are like Jesus. We can't suffer for other people. We can't take their guilt. But we can be an example to them of Christ-likeness and patience and perseverance. A couple of months ago we spent some time with the daughter of a former minister of this congregation. She and her husband have faced the challenge of bringing up an autistic son for for many, many years. And then over the last 10 years or so, maybe more, she's had her own major health problems. But through it all she's been such an example of a grace-filled child of God. 
Others have been able to, to see Christ in her so clearly uh, as she's borne it without complaining. As she's faced those trials with grace. What God is doing in any of our lives is bigger than we can imagine. If by his grace we respond well to trials and tribulations, it can have ripple effects that go far beyond us. And whether that happens in this world or not, we have the promise that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, will be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So firstly tonight, while we wait for Jesus to come back and put all wrongs to right, we're called to live by faith in God's promise that he is in control. If God was in control of all that happened to Joseph, all these things that we've looked at over these last five or six months, well surely, surely none of our lives are outside of his control. So we're called to, to live by, by faith in God's promise that he's in control. Secondly, we're called to live by faith in God's promise of present forgiveness. We're called to live by faith in God's promise of present forgiveness. In many ways, the book of Genesis ends on a high. Yes, it ends with death and a coffin and God's people facing centuries of slavery in Egypt. If you go straight from Genesis 1 to Genesis 50, you wouldn't be thinking that it ends on a high. And yet the faith of Jacob and Joseph here is tremendous. Jacob has had his ups and downs, but, but the faith that he dies with is amazing. Joseph, for all he's gone through and he's still trusting in God, both the suffering which could have turned him away from God and uh, more dangerously perhaps the, the glory, the exaltation, uh, that, that I'm sure turns more people away from God than suffering ever did. The, the chapter of the book ends with, with tremendous faith from Jacob and Joseph. So in that sense it, it ends on a high note. But, but don't our hearts sink when we read about his brothers in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead they said it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they send a message to Joseph saying your father he gave this command before he died and so on. And one of the big questions here is, are the brothers lying? Are the brothers lying? Well, certainly we don't read of any such command from Joseph, that they're to, or from Jacob rather, that they're, they're to, to ask Joseph to forgive them. Now, just because we're not told something in the Bible, it doesn't mean it didn't happen Though interestingly, if you go through examples in the Old Testament where there is reported speech like this, uh, speech that, that, that we haven't heard, uh, often, uh, in nearly every case, it is a lie or, or, it's, or it's a twisting of the truth. So I've always taken this to be a lie from Joseph's brothers. Many commentators, ancient and modern, would agree. I think that's the likeliest thing here but whether it's a lie or not it doesn't even really matter 
Because the real problem here, even if it is a lie, the real problem is that the brothers don't believe that they're forgiven. And if it is a lie, well, the problem is what's going on in their heart that causes them to lie. And that is that they don't believe they're truly forgiven. They worry that Joseph was just being kind to them as long as Jacob was alive. But that once Jacob's dead, Joseph will come and take his revenge. They remember how they reacted all those years ago. When they were beyond their father's reach and had their brother Joseph at their mercy. And now they suspect that Joseph will do the same thing that they once did when they were in his position. Now that he's stronger than them and with Jacob out of the way, they fear that he'll turn on them just as they once did to him. They have so little confidence that Joseph isn't just waiting to to pounce on them and take revenge that they don't even go to him themselves at first. But they send a messenger to him. It's how little they trust him. How little they, they think that he has their best intentions or their best interests at heart. And how does Joseph respond? He weeps. He weeps because they think so little of him. He weeps because they don't think that his forgiveness is anything more than words. This whole event doesn't honour Joseph. It it dishonours him because they don't trust him. They, They don't take him at his word that he's forgiven them. And are we not like the brothers so often? We're not really convinced of Christ's heart towards us. Perhaps we rightly criticise Roman Catholics for praying to saints. But why do they do that? They do it because they're not convinced that God feels any love or tenderness towards them. And so they want someone else to go to God for them. Which in a sense is what Joseph's brothers do here. They send someone else to Joseph because they're scared to go to him themselves. And maybe we've been Christians a long time. We do confess our sins but at times we wonder whether we're truly forgiven. Perhaps especially when a crisis comes as it does here for the brothers when Jacob dies. And why are those doubts they won't affect our salvation. They will rob us of our comfort and affect our service of God here on earth. As the Puritan Richard Sibbs put it, Alas, how can I perform cheerful service to God when I doubt whether he is my God and Father or not? How can we perform cheerful service to God when we're full of doubts? And maybe that's where you're at tonight. You want to perform cheerful service to God. And what holds you back or or robs you of joy as you do it? It's not a lack of desire. But it's doubt as to whether God really is your father. It's doubt as to whether he really has forgiven you. And the answer to this question too is to live by faith in God's promises here it's to live by faith in his promise of present forgiveness that's what being born again offers you that no other religion does 
It offers you the knowledge of present forgiveness. That it's not about trying and trying and hoping that in the end it will turn out that you've done enough. But rather in Christ we have the promise of present forgiveness. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now. Therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not he will be a new creation, but he is a new creation. And what's the evidence that you're in Christ? Maybe you say, well those are great promises, but how do I know if I'm in Christ Well, do you walk in the light? The evidence is that you're not living in darkness like those in the world around us. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That doesn't mean we're perfect. Of course, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As I said this morning, Satan doesn't really care whether you believe in God or not. I guess if you give him a choice, he might, he might say, rather you didn't believe in God. But, but he knows he doesn't need you to, to doubt God's existence to cripple your Christian life. Instead, he knows that all he needs to get you to do is to doubt God's goodness. To get you to doubt God's heart for you. And so because this is such a, 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 such a danger for God's people, uh, such a, a place where Satan can get in, one of the, the Puritans wrote, wrote a little book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. And the burden of that book is to reassure God's people that even though Jesus has been exalted to heaven, just like Joseph is here exalted to Pharaoh's right hand, that even though he's exalted to heaven, Jesus still has the same heart for sinners now in heaven as he did on earth. That even when we sin badly and let him down like Peter, that he's just as kind and patient and loving towards us as he was with Peter and the disciples after they had denied and abandoned him. There's even a line in the book where the author says, your very sins move him more to pity than anger. Your very sins move him more to pity than anger. And I think Joseph is a good example of that here. Is Joseph angry with his brothers? Is he angry here? Are these tears of rage? Despite what they've done in the past, despite the fact that that he at least surely suspects that they're lying to him now. Well, I don't think Joseph is angry here. But he is grieved that their trust in him is so shaky. And that that shaky confidence in him, it doesn't honour him. He'd far rather that they could come bouncing into his presence without a a care in the world. He's weeping because after everything that's happened, they've forgotten who he is and what he's done for them. And so he weeps, but he doesn't lash out at them. He doesn't say, how could you? How could you doubt me like this? But he speaks kindly to them. They're so fearful, so, uh, so, so faithless, but he speaks kindly to them. 
He tells them twice not to fear. He tells them that he'll provide for them and their little ones. And we're told, thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And if you're coming to church, trusting in Christ, but with your doubts, I hope that is the message that you're going away with. That Jesus Christ wants to comfort you and speak kindly to you. Time after time in this sermon series, we've seen how Joseph points us to Jesus Christ. And it's fitting that almost the last thing we read about him is him comforting and speaking kindly to his brothers, whose guilty consciences are threatening to rob them of the joy of forgiveness. Uh, And if you see the similarities between yourself and these brothers, forgiven but doubting, that's what they are. They're forgiven but doubting. And if, if you're in the same boat, hear him speak these same words of comfort over your life tonight. Do not fear. Do not fear. And so as we wait for Jesus to come back, we're called to live by faith in God's promise that he's in control. We're called to live by faith in God's promise of, of present forgiveness because if we don't, it will cripple our Christian lives. It will, it will hold us back from fully serving God. Thirdly and finally, we're called to live by faith in God's promise of future homecoming. We're called to live by faith in God's promise of future homecoming. Both Jacob and Joseph die in Egypt. But both of them die in the confidence that Egypt wasn't going to be the final destination for God's people. They believe, as Joseph puts it in verse 24, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. Again, he says, verse 25, God will surely visit you. And that's not actually just how the book of Genesis ends, but it's how the whole Bible ends. The whole Bible ends with a confident expectation that God will one day come and deliver us. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And tonight I want to look at one application of of this hope that we have that, that we don't often think about. Because to show their faith in God's promise, both Jacob and Joseph gave instructions concerning their bodies. We didn't have a chance to look at it at the time, but back at the end of chapter 47, Jacob had told Joseph uh, similar instructions to hear. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Joseph said yes, but, but that wasn't enough. It meant so much to Jacob that he made Joseph swear to it. And then at the end of chapter 49, in verse 29, as we read earlier, he tells all his sons to bury him in the promised land. It was obviously something really important to Jacob as he approached death. And in verse 25, Joseph gives instructions that the coffin in Egypt isn't to be his final resting place, but that they or their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren 
were to take his bones with them when they went. The point is that what happened to their bodies after they died mattered to Jacob and Joseph. Because they wanted what happened to their bodies to show that they had faith in God's promise. And we have an opportunity to do the same. The subject of cremation has come up a few times before and whenever it's mentioned someone usually says sure it doesn't affect where you go whatever happens to your body which is true and people say well what about those who get blown up or burnt at the stake or get shipwrecked or the fact that most bodies just rot away anyway and yes what happens to your body after you die it doesn't affect where you go it doesn't affect your salvation But where Jacob was buried, it didn't affect where where he went when he died. Where Jacob was buried, it didn't affect his salvation. But what was important to Jacob was the message that it sent. Now, Now this is not a salvation issue. It's not a salvation issue. But if you're planning to get cremated, reconsider whether as a Christian who believes in the resurrection of the body, at least reconsider whether it's something that you want to do. It was not long ago that in Britain cremation just wasn't done. It was viewed as pagan. Things didn't change until the 1880s when a Welsh Druid high priest was arrested for cremating his son. The police thought it was illegal, but the judge disagreed, and gradually the practice grew in popularity. Throughout history, Christians have buried the bodies of their loved ones, like seeds in the ground, in the faith that one day that body will be raised. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, words often read at gravesides, what is sown is perishable, What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. It's interesting here in verse 13 that Jacob's body isn't described as his remains, but it's described as Jacob. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah. And then verse 14, after he had buried his father. They, they don't just talk about the body, but, but they, they talk about him, they talk about Jacob. It's also significant that the word most often used to describe the death of a believer in the New Testament is sleep. The body sleeps in the grave, waiting to be raised. Richard Phillips, who, who's a pastor in, in a, a, a a Presbyterian church in America says it is always the case that our views of the afterlife will influence how we handle the bodies of those who have died. Our theology will shape the way we approach all of life's great events. I came across an article during the week by a Christian advocating that believers were free to choose cremation as long as it didn't cause a weaker brother to stumble. So this is something that Christians have different opinions on. But in the same article, he noted that cremation is usually presented negatively in in the Hebrew Scriptures, that is the Old Testament. And he also tells us that in the early church, 
Uh, cremation was strongly opposed and pagan converts to Christianity were required to choose burial instead. So I'm not saying that it's sinful. I'm just saying, think about the message you wanted to send. That's, that's what was important to Jacob. It was the message. But either way, either way, and just when we're on the subject of funeral arrangements and the like, surely you also want the plan that at your death, the gospel can be heard by as many people as possible. As I've been thinking about all this, a verse from the book of Judges has been in my head. And it's that little comment about the death of Samson just after he gets help to to lean against the pillars of the Philistine temple. And he pulls the whole thing down on everyone, including himself. And it's that little comment about Samson where it says, So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Now, there's a great contrast with Jesus there in that whereas Samson killed uh, people by his death, Jesus saved people by his death, uh, and we're to be more like Jesus than Samson, in that we should want even our death to, to be something that God uses to bring life. And of course, we can't grant salvation by our death, but we can do our best to ensure it gives an opportunity for as many people as possible to hear the gospel. And perhaps it will be said of some of us that more people were saved through our death and funeral than were saved through our lives. Samson standing between those pillars. It was his last chance to glorify God on earth. Our funerals, they will be our last chance. We get to say what happens. And so particularly if it's going to be non-Christian family members taking charge of your funeral arrangements, do what you can to ensure there will be a funeral service where the gospel can be proclaimed Make your wishes clear to your family. It'd be helpful to let the church know as well. There are some of you here, and if you you died and your funeral was was through next door, it would be absolutely packed. And what an opportunity that is. Surely too good an opportunity to miss. And understand the desire not to have a fuss made over you. It's, It's a humble desire But you can't do evangelism in heaven. And so your funeral is your last great evangelism opportunity. We're called to live by faith in God's promise of future homecoming. And of course that's something we're called to do every day in life. Not just at the end. We've we've focused in on the end tonight. but, But this is something for every day of our lives. Yes, the, 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 the confidence that we have in a future homecoming, it, it should change how we think about arrangements for when we die. But far, far more than that, it should affect every day that we live. Jacob and Joseph lived and died in the hope of the Exodus. Even though four centuries would pass between the end of Genesis 50 and Exodus chapter 1. There's just a a few inches of blank space in our church Bibles for them at 400 years. 
But though it would be a long time, Jacob and Joseph, they died in hope. And as Christians, we live and die in the hope of a better exodus. God visiting them, that would be the exodus when when Moses would bring them out. But we live and die in the hope of a better exodus. The promised land was just a picture of heaven. That's where Jacob and Joseph are tonight. That's where we too will go if our trust is in Jesus Christ. The book of Genesis may end with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt, but that's not the end of the story for him. And by God's grace, it won't be the end of the story for us either. Because for the Christian, the story that began in paradise in the presence of God, it will end where it began. Because it will end in paradise too. But this will be a paradise that is even better than Eden. Because all possibility of sin will be gone. All possibility of being cast out of God's presence as, as happened to Adam and Eve, as, as happened to the people of Israel. All possibility of being cast out of his presence will be gone. And so, brothers and sisters, keep going. Live by faith in God's promise that he is in control. Live by faith in God's promise of present forgiveness here and now as an accomplished fact and live by faith in God's promise of future homecoming. Amen. Well, as we close, we'll turn to the end of the psalm we sang twice this morning, Psalm 118, singing now from verse 12 to the end. These last words of the Lord Jesus before he went to the cross. Psalm 118, 12 to the end, page 291. When God does visit us as Jacob and Joseph looked forward to, when Jesus does return as the Bible ends with the confidence that he will, where will he take us? Well, verse 12, he will take us through the gates of righteousness, up to heaven, and the gates of righteousness will open. And those are gates that wouldn't open to any one of us. But they will open to Jesus and all who are joined to him by faith. You know, people tell, tell jokes and they talk about, you know, St. Peter saying, why, why will he let you into heaven? And people come up with some smart answer about why they should be led into heaven. But really when we're standing beside those gates, those gates of righteousness, the only reason is because Jesus is coming with us and he's going through and we're with him. That's the only reason we should be let in. We're with him. And so as we wait for his coming, as, as they sang, when, when Jesus went into Jerusalem, verse 16, you know, the, the triumphal entry, they, they sang these words, but they didn't really understand. They didn't understand what, what sort of king Jesus was. But we sing these words with more understanding than they did by God's grace. As we wait for the coming one to come and take us to himself, uh, we sing, oh, blessed is the one who comes, comes in the Lord's great name, looking back to him coming the first time, looking forward to him coming the final time. And until then, by his grace, we keep going, living by faith in God's promises.
So the tune is 189, tune Thanksgiving 189, Psalm 118, 12 to the end. Uh, If you're able, we'll stand to sing.